0: Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast number five. There were 18 of us. We are now pushing 80. We were in the Harvard class of 1963. I'm Kent Garrett. This episode is about white privilege. On July 7th, 2020, Matthew Alamu, scholar of race, culture, and black men, wrote an opinion piece for the Detroit Free Press. He wrote that, quote, Solidarity is not acknowledging your white privilege, but relinquishing it. The PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan is our guest. He began with telling us why he wrote the opinion piece.
1: Um, and so I was just really moved to, to kind of like, I mean, in a, not in a convicting way, but you know, be sure that, that whites at least see that, you know, to I think conquer stuff like this, you have to own, your kind of daily complicity. And I think for a lot of people, it's easier to blame Trump than yourself. Um, and so my hope was to try to just get people thinking about the, all the ways in which they experience their white privilege. Um, and if you truly wish to, you know, be an ally, you have to confront and disrupt those things on a daily basis.
0: Well, you talked about uh, this idea of whites uh, relinquishing their white privilege. I mean, is that, how realistic is that? And tell, tell us a little about that.
1: Uh, that was fully kind of motivated by the, the quote I mentioned from Lilla Watson um, uh, at the end, where it says, uh, my, um, If you are here, uh, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Um, and so I, I've had that as my email kind of signature or part of it for, for like 10 years now. Um, and I think I was moved by it because I, I think when I think about solidarity, um, or when I think about what we need um, in terms of, you know, change around race, um, I think more in terms of solidarity. I think a lot of people think, you know, kind of what program can we start or how can we make something more accessible? Um, whereas, you know, I'm always thinking like, well, why don't you make the things that are already unfair? Why don't you disrupt those? Um, or, you know, when all when all this is over and you don't feel bad anymore, you know, what are you going to do to to still be a part of? Uh, you know, these struggles, and, and so for me, solidarity just kind of like uh, signals, I think, um, a more, uh, I think, uh, a more step with higher conviction for folks that really want to tackle racism, uh, more than just, you know, putting up a Black Lives Matter lawn sign, which I've I've seen everywhere in Ann Arbor. Um, right. Right. And I think I think while those are are meaningful, I, you know, I also think they're very passive. Um, you know, I often say, like, as a black male, I'm one of the only people uh, the only black male in my department or I was for a while. Um, and you know, in a day to day, like no one ever notices things like that. And you know, it's not until something like this happens where it's like people realize how, um, you know, how much diversity we don't have. Uh, right. And I feel like, you know, if I have to think about those things every day, you know, if you really want to, you know, help or be an ally, you have to think about them every day as well.
0: Well, you know, one point you made in the piece was that you said that, uh, possessing privileges inevitable in our society, and that there is a reality of black privilege. I mean, tell us about that.
1: Uh, so I um, I grew up in Philly mostly, uh, and I remember when I went to undergrad, uh, it was the first time I'd, I'd really been around middle-class black people, um, and I went to an HBCU in, in New Orleans, uh, Xavier. Um, and so I think that Uh, as I kind of like traversed these different spaces and and realized a lot of different kind of identities that are at stake and at play. Um, You know, I found it important to not um, pretend or, you know, imagine that, you know, as a black person, I'm still not subject to possess, you know, privilege. And, you know, over the years, I've learned a great deal about my male privilege. Um, You know, as I've ascended through this program, you know, I definitely have class privilege now. I have access to things I didn't have before. Um, and I think and I, I remember I used to really struggle reconciling being middle class uh, and I worked in D.C. for a while before I came back to school. And um, I kind of started to see how kind of innocent privilege is in a sense that you know, I didn't ask for it. But they're like, you know, choices I, I became able to make. Um, and I was like, you know, like some of these things are natural, like anyone that has it is going to use it and deploy it. Um, you know but i think for me at least because i was constantly so aware of it that i was going from like you know like lower class to middle class i was constantly aware of it and i think i think trying to disrupt spaces in which i was in where people neglected how much at the time i lived in dc uh you know people neglected you know how much it was gentrifying yeah i tried to always you know if we were somewhere and folks were like you know oh this is a new a nice you know new bar i was like oh this is somebody this should be somebody's house um and that was the way i started reconciling at least you know my privilege that you know i knew i possessed it i knew that i didn't like steal it or take it, um, you know, I amassed it. Um, I wanted people to see is that I'm not trying to say that uh, the privilege you have as a white person is something that you've consciously, you know, hoarded or created, like, you know, it's something you have and you you use. Um, The question is, once you realize you have it, you know, what can you do to reduce um, the impact it has?
2: I think what happens often, if I may, is that people don't actively use it they ascribe different reasons for why it's bestowed on them. Mm-hmm. They are so smart. They are so strong, rich, they are, whatever. I mean that these things come to them because of reasons other than color.
1: I think, mm-hmm. yes. I think when you don't have to think about race, then you don't see the proof that you have as racial. Um, Correct. Um, Correct. But and also, I mean, I, I for an example, at least when I think about male privilege, I remember a few years ago, uh, I was with my wife and we, we were walking by one of the dorms on campus. Uh, and I, you've probably seen, but like, you know, when they talk about Generation Zers, they always talk about how like hypersexual they are. And so we were walking by a dorm and I was, oh, I wonder how many kids lost their virginity this this semester. And my wife was like, I wonder how many, how many women got raped this semester. And I just paused because I was like, I, I didn't even think about that.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
1: and mm-hmm. on a day-to-day, you know, kind of a, you know, experience, I don't I don't think about those types of things that made me just realize like all the different ways in which I, as a male, right, I, I ascribe to certain male privileges. Um, and once I kind of realized it, you know, more, I started seeing more and more the ways in which I exercise it. And that doesn't mean I have to like, uh, you know, tell every woman that I'm giving up my, you know, male privilege or, you know, take it away. Um, but I think it's an important first step is just realizing all the ways in which, um, you know, the world caters to me as a man. Um and I think that in and of itself is a big exercise that you know, um, I think most white people don't realize that they, they, they need to, I think, start before you claim the title of ally or. or um, Right,
0: right. John, how do you feel?
3: Well, I, uh, I, question, uh, I question the use and the description of what we're looking at as privilege, the word privilege. I think it's uh, slipped into, you know, slipped out as the word to cover what we're talking about. But I'm concerned about it because a privilege usually is something consciously granted by someone with a uh, with the ability, the superior position, to grant this special right or benefit to someone else. uh, Whether visually, and it's not. I don't think that's really what's always going on. I think, uh, I think a word like advantage might be a little bit more, uh, uh, accurate. There are advantages. And of course, there are advantages to this or that group or individual all over the world in different societies, advantages accrued, established, um, uh, you know, in various ways. Uh, so, I think there are advantages in a racist system, obviously uh, a color-based uh, racist system, but whether they are always privileges, I'm not quite so sure. So I, I don't, um, I want to really trouble and I want to examine when something's a privilege and, and when it isn't before I accept that terminology I kind of reject the uh, overall terminology of the calling it a privilege.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, How about you George? So I'm sort of with John on this. I, I guess I'm 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 not sure the extent to which the nomenclature is important as important as our, our recognition and understanding of the phenomenon. So let to give you an example that falls into the category, I think, from my perspective. And I'm not 100% sure what to call it. Mm-hmm. So I went to an all-black high school in a little town in northeastern Oklahoma. The school building is still there, but all of the memorabilia associated with 70 years of the existence of that high school has disappeared. It disappeared shortly after the schools were integrated in 1970. Not in 1954, in 1970. At the same time, the white high school also disappeared. But all of their stuff was saved and is now on display in the combined high school in the city. All of the black people's stuff disappeared. All of the white people's stuff was retained. Is that white privilege? How exactly do you describe it? I don't know. But certainly, that is indicative of the phenomenon.
0: But how did that happen? I mean, tell me.
4: We don't know. Because nobody who was connected to any sorts of systems that would allow the the preservation of that stuff had the actual power to do anything about it. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, that's really, I guess, the victors are the people who write the history.
4: That's right, that's exactly right, yeah.
5: How do you feel, Jerry? Well, Matthew, you kind of triggered something in my memory and uh, just to give you a little background, you know, one, one of these guys doesn't look like the others and that's because my dad was white and Jewish but my mother was black. And today I'd be considered biracial back then. You, you were black, period, you were a Negro, you had any whatsoever. And I grew up in an all black neighborhood in Washington, DC, my dad was the only white person there. Uh, and I guess, you know, we were somewhat protected because we were all in the same neighborhood and we knew there were things we couldn't do. You couldn't go to the movie theaters. You weren't going to be, be able to get a taxi. You didn't go to the restaurants, et cetera. You all, you guys all know that. But I can remember when I turned 16 and I could go to a drive-in theater, uh, my friends would always say, Jerry, you drive because I had light skin so I could get in. Uh, and I thought, well, why is this? Well, I'm light. That's why. Uh, but they couldn't, so they would kind of hide in the back seat, if you like, and I could drive the car in because I was white, and if you like, that was the white privilege that I had simply because of the color of my skin. And I then I can also remember as I got a little older and I was dating, if I dated a, a white girl, no problem, I would go to great restaurants, etc. If I dated a black girl, uh, people would start to look at me, and I could hear the whispers saying, you know, nigger lover, what the hell are you doing with that black woman? So it was. Uh, it was very startling to me, uh, but uh, that's when I really began to be aware of the difference in my skin and what it meant.
0: I mean, you're sort of catching it in both ways then. I mean,
5: that's sort of that's interesting. <laughs> wow.
2: I can remember a, 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 an incident of black privilege in the Christmas of 1960. I was on the Harvard basketball team. And we played a tournament in Bangor, Maine. The four main schools and then four schools, Brown and Cornell. I don't remember them all. Doesn't matter. Point is, um, the first day, I'm having breakfast. And the newspaper comes. And there is my individual photo in uniform and all. And underneath my picture, it says Harvard Starter. I was a third-string point guard,
3: <laughs> and
2: I played. <laughs> and I, I played about eight minutes the whole tournament, um, but the assumption was made in Bangor, Maine, yeah. that I was the person that our opponents had to worry
4: about.
0: So, Ma- well, so Matthew was that good or bad? I mean, what is that? You
1: <laughs> <laughs> your view? Yeah.
4: Um,
1: what? Well, I- I, a lot of things I want to respond to. Well, first to Fred, I I get it. I love to play basketball, but I'm not quick. And <laughs> the assumption is whenever I play basketball that, you know, you guard the fast guy. And, I, and, it's, usually, <laughs> and it's usually the other yes, black yes, guy. Yes, yes. Um, and so I, I think it is interesting, like, you know, the, the, the ways we ascribe certain uh, athletic abilities, you know, to
0: mm-hmm.
1: people. Um, but, you know, John, you know, I think you bring a good point and, and And George, you brought it in with, you know, about the nomenclature we think about. I do think that there is a problem with kind of like the lexicon of buzzwords that we use. So I think white privilege, white supremacy. I, I I don't think they're necessarily bad words, but I think that their overuse, um, I think then takes away from the point we're trying to make. And so I I do think there's there's a broader array of words to use. Like I mean, I think advantage is good. Um, I I think something about. Um, kind of unconscious like power. You know, you talk about, you know, the the memory or the the ways in which these kind of like black legacies were, were, you know, taken away. Um, And there's a really good book by, um, I'm gonna get this wrong. I think it's Daniel Oliver Horton, Um, but it's a really good book about the ways in which um, a lot of uh, popular uh, US um, monuments and sites um, uh, either look over or exclude uh, or minimize any evidence of slavery. Um, mm. Right. So that you might have a statue of, you know, a, a general from the Confederate Confederacy uh, or not even that you might have a statue of an old Senator. Right. But they may not tell you that the statues on top of the, the slave graveyard um, mm. that they had. Uh, and I think things like that are is something bigger than I think privileges It's something about, you know, a, a power to create, you know, a, a narrative and, um, you know, the fact that you think about this school and, you know, people look back and all they can think about now is a white history. Um, yeah. And I think about that a lot in terms of, uh, you know, for, for myself and I, I kind of talk about this, you know, a bit when I you know mentioned going to undergrad and things like that. I think that one, the words we use I'm, I'm mindful of and I, and I like, you know, the pushback, you know, from John because I feel like at least in my experience thus far that I think if the use of like really convicting words, can really stymie a conversation before it happens. Cause I do mm-hmm. think that a lot of things that happen are part of a larger process that we don't always realize we're part of. Um, you know, like some a white kid born today isn't gonna, you know, be aware of the ways in which, you know, history caters to people that look like them. Um, but, you know, I think what do you do once you're aware, um, you know, is, is an important question. Um, but I do think we have to be very careful about the kinds of words we use because I think there's, I think broadly the issue is power. Right. Who controls history, who controls the narrative, who controls access, who controls, um, you know, the idea that black people are better at basketball, right? You know, who, who kind of creates these, um, these, these, you know, adjectives or descriptions and, and why did they seem to uh, say while others don't? Um, and so I, I, and I would, you know, hear, like to hear more, especially with y'all coming from a different era. You know, I think that, I think that power seems to be, at least for me, the, the, the the one word that I I think is has really persisted in in terms of when I think about the race issues we have. Um, I mean, you can think about power explicitly, right, through you know the Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck. Um, but you can think about it, you know, more more implicitly with the the ways in which you know, like I, I mentioned in the uh, op-ed, you know, we don't call Donald Trump the forty-fourth white president. Um, but We make sure <laughs> people know Obama is right. the first black president.
3: Um, that was a good point yeah well i think that um yeah power well you can remember how even just saying black power back in the 60s was taken as uh, a threat and an affront something uh, to white people i mean they and it it even carries this day the notion of black people with power is still something that it upsets a lot of them and uh i'm well clinton Telling us uh, how much better John Lewis was than Stokely Carmichael, and assuring us that, you know, uh, in fact John Lewis was a a good Negro, and Stokely Carmichael was a black one. Talking about power, this uh, this something has gone on forever, and the notion of that's, that's why I don't want to, uh, to accept any any description of the problem that that weakens black people's fighting spirit and position, I'm against it. So the notion of the black people as victims, passive sufferings of pain, that's sort of a thing that's, that is part of the, uh, part of the scene that we see these days in the newspapers. Uh, black people are defined as people who are suffering and in pain rather than people who have persisted, who are gonna get up and gonna fight for their rights. Um, If you take too much of a a implication of white privilege to a lot of black kids, I especially children and young people, they're they're going to think that they are in a uh, losing situation and that they can only present themselves as uh, victims and supplicants rather than as fighting people. So, you know, these these kind of notions are all balled up in how I respond when I see these.
0: but I mean, we are still victims, John. I mean, there is the victim element still there. I mean, uh, it's a question of uh, balance, maybe
3: you think. Yeah, yeah. Like, are you victims, uh, victims? uh congenitally and and eternally and uh, by definition and intrinsically. You know, that's a dangerous situation no, I, to. No, I'm not saying that. Meaning, but I'm just you know, saying. <coughs> but that I mean that. But that's the. That's the way it's often presented and accepted by a lot of black people that they are um, intrinsically, uh, you know, victims and incapable of of doing things. So, you know, it's all a a matter of measure, but I see a real danger in, uh, well, I was just reading about this father of um, Paul Robeson. I mean, he was a slave. He grew up to learn Greek, Latin, mathematics. He had to do all of that to raise himself uh, up and um you know that's uh you know that's the kind of that's the kind of fight back and assertion of black potential and power right. needs to be encouraged right. and uh so that's so that's why i'm I like to push back against these um
0: the victimization thing, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, I'll hear you.
0: I mean, Matthew, how old are you? I mean, just to, if I might ask, to get a sense of how much of the world have you sort of, I mean, we're all uh, pushing eighties.
1: so. I'm
0: 35. 35. <laughs> yeah, we used to be 35.
1: Used to be. Can
5: you remember that far back yet?
4: <laughs> Matthew, your comment about, about Obama and Trump reminded me, I think, of a joke that either Kathy Griffin or Samantha Bee told. I can't remember which one it was that Obama was the first black president, as far as we know.
0: <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. I mean, how
0: do you come down on this victimization issue, uh, Matthew? I mean, what's your sense of, your? how does your generation kind of feel about it?
1: Uh, um, I think there's something to be said about the ways in which we disempower people with the word power. It's like, you know when I use that quote at the end, you know, uh, I've I often hate and get really annoyed when you know in moments like these, like whites feel bad for me. It's I need you to feel bad for me. I need you to recognize you know what you have. I mean, I think that you know you can be the biggest person on the court. You know, because I'm small doesn't mean that I'm weaker. You're just the biggest person on the court. Um, and and I think that at least for me, I think that I don't like to over victimize. So like, I study black men. Um, and I, I study particularly absent fatherhood, and so I, I study how um. Uh, black men in Detroit, low-income Black men, uh, use the experience of an absent father to make sense of fatherhood, manhood, relationships. <clears throat> and I'm making a point, that, that in no way do I say absence is bad or do I say their experience is bad, right? It is, it is a experience to be understood. Um, and I do think that sometimes we have a tendency in thinking about you know this idea of power or privilege to then put people in the victim uh, you know, category. Um, and, and with that, I think we kind of uh, dehumanize them to some extent, or we we take away the powers in which they do have. Um, and I think at least with black men or in, in, in times like these, I, I do feel like there's a, a need to, and I, I actually, I told my, my white friends, this. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine that, you know, I see a lot of whites in these times, like, you know, they're rushing to protest, they're rushing to, um, you know, speak to, uh, like, there was an, another shooting in Detroit uh, a few weeks ago, and I knew a friend like his, his wife, uh, like ran to Detroit, you know, to start protesting. And I remember saying, like, well, you know, don't assume that this guy that got shot by the police was, um, wasn't doing something wrong, right? It's like, you know, the, the idea, it's not that we don't have to be victims to not deserve racism. And I think sometimes people can only understand us not deserving racism if they see us as like disempowered. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least from my generation. I, uh, I think that's could a problem. I make a point about absent fathers? Sure. If you
2: go back to the 50s, which is... When I became sort of conscious, Um, the welfare system did not support whole families. Mm -hmm. So it was hard for a black man to get a job, but he couldn't live with his life mate, or the assistance that the welfare system could provide would be turned off. Mm -hmm. So fathers were separated from their families forcefully by the rules mm-hmm. um, that's no longer happening but what we have done is broken black families and then blamed black men for the result yeah I'm I make another, mm-hmm, okay
1: so yeah. I take a different spin on it with my dissertation is that I, I agree and that that history is there. And I think we've studied it in that way. But I think also then the ways in which you study black men um, over time is just to then to talk about how disempowered they are by poverty, unemployment and you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. For me in this as a person, I had an absent father. You know, it, I don't think about whether or not my father was unemployed or you know, disadvantaged in some way. You know, I just know he wasn't there. Um, and him not being there impacted the way that I, I tried to make sense of relationships, things like that. Like I remember when I met my wife, um, I, I'd met my dad, I've met him like once in the past 30 years. And I, I remember after the last time I met him, I remember telling myself, like, I have no idea how relationships work. Um, and so I told my wife, like, we're going to marriage counseling just cause I don't, I don't know what to do. Um, and, and it's been helpful. And I, I think what I'm trying to look at at least is not so much as, um, you know, why are black men absent? Right. It's just more so what do you do with absence? And I think that a lot of times, you know, men are trying to make sense of the world the best they can, but I don't think we care about that as much. I think when we focus on, you know, those times, which is is valid, I think then we we only think and characterize black men as needing jobs. If they had jobs, they'd be better dads. If they, um, you know, we didn't amass incarceration, they'd be better dads. Um, But, you know, for their kids, they're they're not, they don't see that, they don't feel that. And it's not because it's not valid. Um, It's because there's just a different, I think, experience in, in how one makes sense of the absence. Um, But I agree with you. And I I think that, but I think that looking at it from that way dominated research for a long time. And I I think it forced people to only see black men then as like these, you know, victims of, uh, you know, unfair welfare policies or, you know, victims of mass incarceration, uh, things like that. And so I I see, I don't see myself as challenging that. I see myself as just showing there's other dimensions to understanding black men.
0: Mm -hmm. What is your, I mean, Matthew, what is your game plan in terms of like the next, 20 years or and your dissertation, doctorate? I mean, what are you? what's your game plan in terms of- While uh, you're
2: still young?
0: <laughs> while you're still young. <laughs> Not well, <like> I,
1: a- <laughs> I didn't think I'd be in school in my mid-30s. Uh, I had a very roundabout way to grad school. I was actually a county major in undergrad. Um, and I was uh, in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. And that semester, I uh, went to Georgia State. Uh, in Atlanta and it was the first time I took a liberal arts course or a humanities course I took philosophy ethics and a film course and mm-hmm. I never participated in class as much as I did and I, I think I thought that's what college would be like but you know if you're an accounting major it's, it's not um, huh. and so uh, you know that was led a little
3: to win that don't blow somebody some good right <laughs>
1: yeah um, and so you know I, I ended up you know here I, I think a lot later than most people but um, you know, right now I'm hoping I'm on the job market. I'm hoping that, you know, that the job market opens up. You know, there's been a few postings, but, you know, this is definitely going to delay, I think, you know, that to some extent. Um, in terms of my research and work, I, I love teaching. Um, I love I love teaching, especially about um, issues around race. Um, I love uh, kind of, you know, helping convene dialogues around race. I think that I'm, I, I try at least my best to be very disarming. You know, my, I don't think you're going to get white people to understand if you just start by charging them with something and so my, my hope is to at least in that sense kind of create conversations and understanding that get people to kind of accept what they have not like accuse them of what they have um mm-hmm. in that sense and in terms of my research um you know i definitely uh just want to push the envelope on i think how we think about um race race relations how we think about black men um if if nothing more because i'm i am i I strongly feel like uh, we've we're so obsessed with showing how bad off Black people are um, that I want to show ways in which we can create general knowledge from the experience of Black people. Um, you know, like I, I think what I'm studying now with absent fatherhood, I think it can speak to anyone with an absent father. I don't think it's just Black men, you know. But we spent years kind of generalizing life from white people's experience. Um, you know, my hope is that or creating general knowledge from white people's experience. Um, you know, my hope is that to, you know, kind of increase the general knowledge we have uh, as a result of, you know, studying black people and that it's not just relegated to race. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Well, let me ask you this. I mean, sort of last question. How, what's your sense of uh, the, the black kids you come across in your classes? I mean, where, where are they at? I mean, how are they different than when you were growing up and certainly how, when we were growing up? What's your sense of that?
1: In terms of like, if they're...
0: In terms of if they're, you know, if they're woke and if
1: they're, uh,
0: I mean, that that sort
1: of thing. Uh, I think that some of my black students I've had, I think they would probably say that I, I think that they, I would push back a lot. And I think they thought that I was pretending not to agree with them. Um, I think for a lot of them, I was just trying to push them to think more critically about race. I think a lot of times you get to a space like Michigan and it's very isolating. Um, and I think you can get very then defensive about and the way you think about you know race and your experience. And so, at least in my class, you know, the whole point is to get people to understand how race works, how race has worked. Not um, you know, let me tell you all the things white people have done, or let me tell you how bad off black people are. Um, mm-hmm. So I think black students I've come across. I mean, I think over time they appreciate that. Um, but I, I do think that at least in a place like Michigan, and, and this is coming from when that a person I went to in HBCU. Um, I think teaching race in this kind of space is, is still something I'm, I'm learning to do. I think in a way that makes, um, that makes, you know, a black person who's, you know, one of maybe, you know, 10% right of, of the student population, I think still feel more empowered. Um, I think that when I've taught race, it's usually like two or three black people in the class. And, um, that's a dynamic that I have to think about cause I don't want to show favoritism. Um, you know, but I, I do want to make sure that, um, that they have access um, to understanding, you know, ways regardless of where they come from in terms of their, um, you know, high school, things like that. Uh, but I know at least for me, I, I know that I always encourage students to just ask questions. I mean, I discovered kind of this space by, um, you know, when I took these classes like philosophy and ethics, I, I just asked a lot of questions, um, you know, or I encourage students, you know, to, to just ask simple questions because some things I was never afraid to be like, Can, what does that word mean? You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think sometimes students of color, when you're surrounded by white people, you don't want to reveal how much you don't know, um, and so then my approach sometimes is to make them all see like, well, you all don't know anything because you're taking this class, um, right. and you know, so hopefully they feel more more comfortable. And I've always make myself more accessible, um, office hours, um, things like that. But you know, definitely I feel like you know, at least if I'm teaching in this kind of space um, where it's majority white, th- thinking of ways to make sure that black people feel or black you know black students you know, feel more empowered to, to participate in class, um, but in a way that's still critical. All
0: right. All right, well, listen, thank you for coming on. This has been uh, really fun, and uh, thanks a lot, and we'll uh, hopefully get you back and keep a sense of your progress and see what goes on. Thank you.
1: I'm honored for the invite, and I'd, I'd be happy. This is actually really fun, so I'd be happy to uh, participate again. Okay. Wow. It was great reading your article. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there it
0: is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh. Which is the one on the left? That's, uh, That's King. King. Yep. King. And on the right?
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, Malcolm. Malcolm. Is there a way to email that or something? Uh, yeah, I can. That would be wonderful.
0: Good. Where did you get those? Where did you find them?
1: I uh, so I'm, I don't know if you've read uh, Manny Marable's book about Malcolm X, um, uh, Reinvention of a Man. Um, and I remember reading the book and, and the, I mean, got a lot of pushback from folks that didn't like all the things he revealed. But mm-hmm. I really liked the way in which he humanized him. Um, yeah. And I think that sometimes when you think about these leaders, um, you know, they were kids too. And uh, for me, it represents like, you know, how innocent they were at a point, how imperfect they are. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm personally a big fan of, of Malcolm X. Um, but you know, for all the you know things we think about, you know, anyone they were kids once, and I, I think it's just something I think about in terms of mm-hmm. you know,
0: respect. Love to have everyone love started from to somewhere. That. That's great. Yeah.